Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Dan and Joe Sports Show. As always, I'm Dan. And I'm Joe. And Joe thought we'd have be fitting for us to do a special Olympics themed show. Uh, just been in, you know engaged in it the last couple weeks. I uh, just got done watching Gabby Thomas run for the U.S. Really interesting story. She is a Harvard Harvard student right now, who's also a runner, and apparently she's had the second highest. Uh, Fastest run in the 200 meter since uh, Flojo, of course, the legendary runner. And she was really amazing to get to watch right there. And just a really fascinating story. And I think that's definitely someone you could look for in the future to be just all over the TV. It's a, it's a big role model for, for anyone. How old did you? Uh, she's like 21. So I think I think she, she may have just graduated from Harvard. I couldn't really like catch from that whether she was still a student or not. But it sounded like. Uh, she said after she got out of school, she never thought that she would still be running. So I think that means to me that maybe she just graduated from Harvard. Well, I have two things to say about that. Number one, I'll say the plug. Did you know that the current student body president of Harvard University is from Hattiesburg, Mississippi? I did not know that, Joe. That is, that is a really interesting fact, though. Yes, I had to throw that out there for the hometown. But the other thing I'll say is, you know, you talk about the storylines with her. I mean, that's the great thing about the Olympics every four years that you see a lot of great storylines. You know, like we were talking before the show, you know, I'll tell everybody that I'm more of a casual Olympics fan. You know, I know the big names like Michael Phelps of the world, um, Simone Biles, but, you know, I don't follow it as closely. But what does attract me, though, is when I see big storylines like that and players, you know, and competitors that uh, kind of, you know, uh, latch on to the heartstrings of the American public. Yeah, I mean, you know, from working in the Student Athlete Center when I was at Ole Miss, I was blown away by, you know, those athletes' abilities to, you know, balance school and uh, and athletics. But this girl's story, I mean, someone who got into Harvard academically and really just ran because she liked doing it and to get to this point, and then she, she's also African-American and just a great role model for people of all races and what she's able to do. And also she's, I mean, she's really pretty too. Like she's really kind of like, like hits like every single like, you know, thing. And I'm like, man, you are going to, you're going to be just quite a success in this world and just really an impressive person. Yeah, it sounds like the marketing is just going to be through the roof as well. Well, and on that too, Joe, it's interesting, you know, now you have marketing, I think Gabby Thomas, I think she is a Harvard graduate, so it doesn't really apply to her, but um, they're talking about a lot with Cindy Lee. Of course, Cindy Lee is the uh, the new uh, face of U.S. gymnastics who is about to become an Auburn student. So she's 18 right now. Um, she's starting her freshman year of Auburn next year. So it's going to be pretty soon because we're, we're into August now. She's going to go up there. And they're saying right now that they think that she could be the richest in-school athlete maybe in America because of what it is to be the face of U.S. gymnastics. Interesting. You said going to Auburn. She, she's going to Auburn, yeah. She's from St. Paul, Minnesota. I think her dad is South Korean. Um, and, you know, basically when Simone Biles started bailing out of a lot of these different events, Cindy Lee was the next best person and took over on a lot of them. And she ended up getting the gold medal in the all-around gymnastics a couple nights ago, which is, that's the biggest thing in, in gymnastics because that's literally all the different things they give medals in. You do all of them and you have the best collective score out of every single event. And so, you know, I think it, it is a very neutral way to say who's the best gymnast in the world, and she ended up winning that. Gotcha. 
Gotcha. And I watched earlier um, tonight the replacement um, gymnast for Simone Biles, and I thought she did pretty well. I can't remember what state she was from, um, but I, I was impressed with her performance as a replacement. Yeah, so she's from uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, and it's funny, like, uh, after she won the all-around uh, gymnastics gold medal, they the mayor of St. Paul, Minnesota, declared the next day Sunny Lee Day in St. Paul, and then that same day in Auburn, they went ahead and rolled Timbers Corner for Cindy Lee winning the gold medal. Hmm. Interesting. So she's getting kind of a hero's welcome in both of them. Now, what she did tonight with the uneven bars, and I think she, you know, she ended up winning, getting the bronze medal, which, you know, is I could tell that probably wasn't her best event, and she did pretty good. And there was a there was a Belgian girl who, you know, was number one in the world at that, who just really just you know was so amazing at it. You kind of saw that she was going to win, and so I think that was definitely something that maybe you could see Cindy Lee being better at when she comes back for the next Olympics. And with her being eighteen, you definitely think that she's going to be back in four years. Yeah, how many years do the gymnasts you know normally go? Like, can you do that into your late twenties, or is it kind of like a mid twenties cutoff? I mean, yeah, generally mid twenties is about as far as you go. Um, there, there is one, there's one exception to that. Sometimes some of the Eastern European women, I feel like, go on for a long time. There's this one Romanian woman who I think now is like in her forties, and she still does the four routine. And every year, like they have the Olympics, they're like, we can't believe she's still doing this, but then she's out there doing it. But for the most yeah, part, about her. I think she was like in five different Olympics, maybe. Yeah, she's like in five different Olympics. Now, I think she may have been in this one too, but I think this one really is like it for her. Yeah, I think you're right. But, you know, I mean, generally you get to 26 and you're a, a very old gymnast. So, I mean, I guess it would be possible if Cindy Lee can maybe do three Olympics. I mean, you know, this was going to be Simone Biles' second Olympics and she was considered the best gymnast in the world. Uh, I don't even know that Nastia Lukin did more than one Olympics. So, I mean, it's, it's tough. And I think, I think maybe um, Michaela Maroney might have been in two of them. So, generally, you see two Olympics is about the max. And that's a rare thing for people to even get into two different Olympics in gymnastics. Now, are they going to do it again in three years or four? Like, are they going back to the regular schedule? It's going to be in three years again. So, it'll be 2024. So, they're going to they're gonna get it back on the even year. So, I wonder if that actually might help some of these gymnasts, you know, that normally wouldn't be able to participate in an extra Olympics, you know, maybe give them that additional uh, uh, opportunity. I think it would. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, I think that, like I said, I think Simi Lee's got a great chance of being in the next Olympics. And I think maybe even someone like Simone Biles can maybe make another run at it if she still wants to at this point. Um, it's a really interesting yeah. story of what's happened with her. Uh, basically she had an event, you know, in the very beginning where she was doing great. And they started marking her off points and saying that she couldn't do certain moves because she's the only person in the world that can do it. And they didn't want other people to get injured by them doing that. So they're not going to let her do these moves. And, I mean, to me, I thought that was an absolutely ridiculous thing. Like, if you're better than everyone else, if they can't do it, then don't do it. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're gonna get, if they're going to get injured doing it, then sorry they're not as good as you. I mean, my biggest takeaway is I've kind of gone back and forth with the story. I mean, everything that they do to me looks very dangerous to begin with. Yeah. But to me, that's the one kind of contradictory thing to the story. You know, I can't speak for her, you know, and, you know, what's going on with her personally. But, like, that would just kind of be my overall takeaway is the sport inherently is very dangerous. 
Yeah, I mean, it's dangerous to begin with. I mean, you were watching those uneven bars earlier because I was asking you to watch that. I mean, that to me is the scariest one out of all, everything they do. I mean, there's high flying, you're, you know, especially that part where they go from the top bar down to the, the lower bar, like at a high speed. I mean, yeah. these, these are things where you get injured all the time. When you do the vault, uh, the vault's got a lot of high speed running and the jumps, and then you have the flips. And I mean, I just, I don't understand how you're saying off the bat, this isn't already, uh, you know, dangerous too. So I think that's stupid. And you know what? I mean, right. I completely blame them for this you know, this little mental breakdown she's having right now because if you only know one way to go, then how are you going to change your entire routine and how are you going to have, have comfort in what you're doing if what you're doing is supposedly too dangerous for anyone else to do and you can't do it anymore? So, of course, it's psychologically messing with them right now. Mm-hmm. And I also think, you know, the day and age of social media significantly contributes to that as well. You know, a lot of celebrities to talk about psychologically. I know Kendall Jenner has been interviewed about it. Just social media, you know, causes a lot of turmoil. And I think that that's another product here. You know, if this was 30 years ago, Simone Biles wouldn't be dealing with the same level of, you know, constant 24-7 scrutiny without social media. Well, yeah, and I'm sure there's a lot of people that are saying she's unpatriotic or she's not tough enough for, for getting out of this, but I don't, I don't think that's true. And in fact, like I kind of applaud her decision. If she doesn't feel like due to the way they've restricted her ability to do her events that she can do them at the top level and she's not going to be able to get the gold, then you should step back to let someone like Sunni Lee do it if you are a real patriot. So I've got no problem with her decision. And I also admire the fact that she stayed there in Tokyo and supported her teammates. You know, she's out there with them. It's not like she's, you know, taking a quick flight to get back to the U.S. No, exactly. And, and so I think that I've actually gained more respect for her. And I'm really upset because I, I feel I feel like this is cheating by the International Olympic Committee, them even saying that to her and stopping her from doing what she's able to do. Yeah. Yeah, like I think at first I was kind of, you know, wondering what was her motivation. But then the more I followed the story, I see her more as, you know, the person that's the victim here. And I have bigger questions for the committee, to your point. Absolutely. Well, Joe, you know, getting out of gymnastics, uh, you're talking about, like, you love the stories that you see in the Olympics. One that I found to be really interesting is, is not one that probably a lot of people watched or, you know, it's not going to be a big draw Olympic event. But I was watching the, uh, the diving earlier. And the girl that ended up winning the bronze medal for the U.S., uh, Crystal, was someone who had didn't even start diving until she was 20 years old. And apparently she was a trampolinist and she had injured herself doing trampoline really badly. And she was going to community college just being a regular person at 20 years old. And somebody like saw her like trying to keep doing her trampoline thing. They said, have you ever thought about diving before? And she was like, no. And and she got into diving and like, you know, within a couple months, apparently someone from the University of Nevada came and looked at her because she was going to community college in Nevada and she started swimming for them at 20. She like walked on to the University of Nevada swim team and now she's 29 and was like the oldest diver on the U.S. team. And she ended up getting a bronze medal today. And it was just it was a really cool story because, I mean, she's someone that you never would have thought anyone would have a chance to, to get a bronze medal. And she beat like all kinds of people that one world events, including a girl that was Canadian that was supposedly, um, you know, definitely after the Chinese girl is the best one, and she ended up getting bronze. And I kind of thought that she got jobbed a little bit and should have gotten silver. I thought that the, the, the Chinese girl that they gave uh, silver to didn't look near as good as Crystal in her events. But 
apparently there's a little bit of bias to the Chinese in this because they're so much better than everybody else at diving. Apparently in this one event, the last yeah. time they've won every gold medal since 1980, and most of them they've won gold and silver. So apparently there's a little bit of like, you know, the judges tend to like lean with them on different, you know, close calls. And I really thought that the American girl wasn't as good as the number one girl. The number one person from China apparently hadn't lost a, a diving event in like six years anywhere. And you could see it. But the silver, I really thought that uh, Crystal, the American, should have won silver. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And that, that's a great story you brought up, too, you know, with the trampoline incident and the, the diving. And also think about, you know, with uh, you being an Auburn grad, wasn't Auburn, like, really good at swimming and diving, or they still are? Well, they were, like, when I was younger and when I went to college there, I mean, they basically won a national championship of, like, every year for, like, basically, like, 20 years. They pretty much won it every year, or at yeah. least, like, you know, two out of every three years. And... Well, the name of their coach was David Marsh, and he was just awesome. I mean, he had some like fifteen national championships. And since he's left, they're still good. There's not you know at that level where they're just the the team in, in swimming. I think now Texas is kind of the the best team. Gotcha. But generally, I mean, I think all the years that I went to school there, and when I was younger, you would see at least one uh, swimmer in the Olympics um, from Auburn. And a lot of times you'd see multiple ones. You'd see multiple ones from different countries. I remember one time they had a swimmer from Auburn that actually was swimming for Zimbabwe. So not even just U.S. Really? They had, yeah, they had international presence too. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, speaking about uh, international, of course, we, we had a whole show about Djokovic uh, winning, you know, uh, getting his uh, Wimbledon championship where he beat Berrettini, and we were talking about him going for the Golden Slam, and I kind of thought, I mean, in my mind, I thought he was going to get it. I thought he was going to get the gold medal here and that he was going to be able to go on and win the U.S. Open, and now he competed at not just men's singles in the Olympics. He also competed in mixed doubles, which I thought was interesting because I can't really see Djokovic being a good next partner, getting along very well with a female partner. But that's just me. Based on the way I see him play, I just don't really see that. But as you know, as someone's played a lot of mix, I, I don't really see Djokovic as the as the best kind of partner for that. But I mean he ended up making it to uh, the bronze medal match in that one. But well let's say you know on the singles level he had won gold. Would that have put like pressure on him to win the mixed doubles in order, you know, to not have that that loss on his resume or would it still have been regarded the same? I think it, it would still have been regarded the same. Uh, the mixed thing was just an, an added thing that he was going for a medal for. I mean, and what's interesting, Joe, is he didn't win a medal in either one. He lost the, he lost uh, to Zeverev and then that knocked him into the bronze medal match. And then he lost the bronze medal match to a Spanish tennis player who I never heard of before. And then in uh, mixed, he ended up loop. He instead withdrawn. So either he or his partner must have gotten injured because usually withdrawn means you you got out because you were injured. And so he didn't end up yeah. winning a medal in either one. And you know Zeverev is a good tennis player, but not someone I ever thought in my life I would see beat Djokovic. And in my mind, I thought you know with, with the draw that I saw, I thought probably the only person who could beat Djokovic that was doing singles would have been uh, Sisipis, but Sisipis got knocked out in the quarterfinals. It was just what three short weeks ago we were watching the Wimbledon final, and so I wonder, you know, 
do you think like the quick turnaround, like having to train for the Olympics, like what, what do you attribute this uh, upset to? Well, Joe, I mean, there is a short turnaround, but I think something that could be it was the heat too. Apparently, uh, you know, of course, you and I are dealing with right now in the deep south, and it's horrible. But apparently, in Tokyo, it's pretty bad too. I mean, it's. I think they said that during some of the tennis matches, they've had a heat index of like one ten, and uh, Daniil Medvedev, who's he's a top five tennis player from Russia. Apparently, during one of the matches, he literally went over to the official and he was like, "Listen, you can withdraw me if you want." But if I keep playing this match, I literally think I'm going to die. And his opponent, and his opponent was like, "Wow!" And so because they, he and his opponent like talked to the officials about that, they started moving the tennis matches back to night night matches. They said they couldn't play them during the day anymore. And so that's why you started seeing like you know I think some of the tennis matches. Uh, I think when when Benchich, uh, the the Swiss woman who ended up winning the gold medal. I think when she won her gold medal match, it ended at like eleven thirty at night. Goodness! But well, I turned on some beach volleyball earlier today, and it really looked like it was scorching temps for that. Oh yeah, no, I mean that was that was really hot. But I mean, I think they're more like apt to deal with it. I mean, obviously they're wearing lights. That's something they have to deal with all the time in their sport. I think tennis is a little bit different. Yeah. I think you know, depending on where they're from, they don't generally experience that heat. And so I think that might have been a factor, too. Yeah, yeah. Djokovic, you know, he, he lives in Monaco, and it does get hot in Monaco, but, I mean, you don't get 110 heat index very often there. Yeah, you got these native Europeans, you know, they're playing mostly tennis. And, you know, additionally, um, you have, um, you know, a lot of the Grand Slam tournaments are obviously in cooler climates. You know, even New York, you know, doesn't get as hot as it does, you know, in other parts of the world. Well, and Djokovic is always going to be center court in New York, which means he plays inside. Because, you know, they, they, have, they, play in yeah. dome, they play in that dome center of the U.S. Open. So that's going to be AC, and it's going to be like you're in Superdome or something, you know, just playing tennis. <laughs> so, yeah. Good point. Um, but, yeah, one, one takeaway I had, though, and I was thinking about this, is as I watched Benchich, who was a really interesting tennis player I'd never watched before. She was number nine in the world and ended up winning the gold in women's singles. Um, she's the first Swiss player I've really seen be a big deal since Federer. And I was thinking to myself, I was like, you know, if I were Federer, I would start doing mixed tournaments with her. Because, I mean, I think Federer would be an awesome mixed partner and probably a guy who could win a lot of majors as a mixed partner. And if you have someone yeah, like her, really extended. you know, if you have someone like her that's winning majors now, that's, you know, won the Olympics. And not only did she win, uh, women's singles she also made it to the final of women's doubles she lost in the finals she got a silver medal in women's doubles and a gold in women's singles and i'm thinking to myself i'm like man if federer did mix with her he could add a lot more uh majors on the trophy case just in a different way oh absolutely it sounds like he'd be able to extend his career longer well, and something I, you know, I've talked about too. My wife and I talked about this a lot, and I, I like that they did it in the Olympics. They only made three sets in the Olympics. And I think that's more fair, and I kind of think that they should make men's tennis. They should change it from five sets to three sets because five sets is way too many, and it's not really fair for older players. And I feel like if you had it at three sets, there'd be guys that like were as technically sound as Federer that would have a chance to win a major even into their forties if it was three sets versus five sets. But when you get to five, I mean, 
if you're in your late 30s, early 40s, you just can't keep up with that from a, from a physical standpoint. Well, I completely agree. And you know me, like, you know, someone that enjoys tennis, watches Wimbledon, but more of a casual fan. Like, you know, I, I can't sit there for five hours usually and watch a match. And so I, I would love that. Now, even I can't do that. Now I can sit there and watch a three-set three, three set match and watch the whole thing um, on anything, but five is just too long. So that's something I kind of like to see, and that was what they did in the Olympics. And that also may have thrown Djokovic mm-hmm. off because he does tend to win a fair amount of four- and five-set matches. And this one, I mean, there were three sets. And I think, you know, when he lost, it was always in, in three sets. So, you know, he's not yeah, he's used, to be, point. he's used to be on a giveaway two sets and still win. Yeah, he kind of paced himself and kind of like wear out the opponent. And then, Joe, we were talking about earlier, like, you know, uh, before the show, we were talking about golf, too. Uh, I thought the golf, uh, you know, in today ended up being amazing. So the person who won the gold was Xander Shoffley from the U.S. And Xander's a guy who's gotten really close to winning a bunch of majors in the last couple of years. He's someone that I've had on my list. He's someone I would have thought would have already won a major, but he hasn't yet. But he gets an Olympic gold, and I think that's got to be a good springboard to him possibly winning his first major as soon as next year. And he beat some really good big names. I mean, Colin Morikawa, uh ended up uh, battling for a bronze medal and not getting it. Uh, you know, you had Rory up there. Uh, Rory ended up being in that tie for seventh place. And so it was really interesting, Joe. You had uh, Xander Shoffley at 1,800 to win it. Rory Sabatini went out today and shot a 61 and was in the clubhouse with the lead for most of the day until Shoffley was able to kind of snatch it away at the end. Um but then you had seven people tied at third place. And so they had this epic, like, seven-person playoff to get the bronze medal. And eventually, KT Pan from uh, Chinese Taipei ended up getting it uh, with Morikawa at the end in him. But Rory McIlroy was in this playoff, and it was just kind of really great golf to get to see all these guys competing for a bronze medal. It sounds like it. And one question I had, you know, what, what does the course look like in Japan? Like, do they have trees and things like that, or does it look a lot different from, like, the U.S., like, uh, uh, landscape? Um, I mean, you could tell. I mean, they had trees and everything, but it was definitely seems a lot more artificial than a U.S. course, if that makes sense. I mean, it felt like, you know, there definitely was not as much naturalness to it, what I was seeing. Then, like, the trees looked as natural, the grass, everything, and you could tell it was, like, in a city and all that kind of stuff. You know, so it was much different. Um, but one thing I found interesting, I didn't even know you could do this in the Olympics, talking about Sabatini. He's a guy who he was the oldest player playing in the Olympics uh, in, in golf at 45. He used to be kind of a big deal, and he was a guy that never won a major, but you'd see him a lot of times make runs at majors. And he probably got as high as maybe like number 10 in the world and probably one of the better players to not win one. But you haven't heard about, I haven't heard about Rory Sabatini in at least five or six years. And apparently he married a woman that was from, um, I want to say it was like Slovenia or something like that. And he's a South African guy. And so when I, when I saw like, you know, the Slovenia, Rory Sabatini, I was confused. So I was like, well, he's from South Africa. So I don't understand that. But apparently he married a Slovenian woman. And you apparently can claim the country of your spouse if you get married in the Olympics. So he decided to play really? for Slovenia, yeah, instead of playing for uh, South Africa. 
you know, I don't know how often this has happened, but you could actually see, you know, a predicament where that could cause like, you know, some uh, jockeying for, you know, uh, arranged marriages, you know, for uh, Olympic competition. I don't know. Now, you know, maybe that'll happen uh, with Slovenia with Luka Doncic, right? And start getting married to someone like really good so that they can claim that. Yeah, well, yeah, he's on the Slovenian team, but they, they can marry, get him married to a U.S. girl. Right, that's that's what I'm saying. You, you can add another athlete and maybe a different sport to to really kind of add to that. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, that, that was that was really interesting. The last thing I was going to say about the allegiances thing, it came up big in golf because I was interested that Rory McIlroy was actually playing for the Irish team because there's always been a big question with me as to whether you know when you're in Northern Ireland, obviously you have the you have the choice to be to, to consider. Consider yourself, am I a British citizen or am I an Irish citizen? Because, of course, you know, Northern Ireland is part of the United Kingdom. And apparently, I didn't know this was such a crisis of conscience. I've always kind of made fun of Rory because it just seemed like he was more British to me than he was Irish. But apparently this is a huge, like, you know, crisis of conscience for him. And the first time they did the Golf Olympics uh, was in 2016. Apparently it, it did exist in the early 1900s in the beginning of the Olympics, but then it went away and it didn't come back to the last Olympics. And Rory actually chose to sit out of the 2016 Olympics because he couldn't make up a decision as to whether he was going to play for the UK or for Ireland. Interesting. Interesting. And, and I think you make uh, an interesting uh, statement about, you know, the loyalty to Ireland because I've known people that have lived both in Southern Ireland and also uh, Northern Ireland, Ireland. And they, you know, they told me firsthand about the rivalry there historically. And, um, you know, also when you talk about golf at the Olympics, yeah, I was wondering how long it had been an Olympic sport because I was thinking like, you know, 10 years ago, I didn't remember it being played. Yeah, I mean, it's it's new, but I mean, it, the way they did it, I thought the format was really cool. They just made it like a regular golf tournament. And like I said, it, it allowed this opportunity to where normally you would never have a, a playoff for third place. But because it was for a medal, you had seven guys that were all tied that were fighting for a bronze medal, which I found to be interesting. But apparently, you know, so Rory ended up in 2016 deciding to not play for either one because apparently he didn't want to make anybody mad on either side. And he just, like, didn't want to be a political figure when it came to golf. And for some reason this time, he decided that he would play for the Irish team. Gotcha. So, kind of interesting. Um but, yeah, you know, going back to tennis, too, I thought it was interesting that, you know, I don't, I don't know if you noticed this, Joe, but you don't see Russia in the Olympics, right? You see the ROC, which is the Russian Olympic yes. Committee. And so apparently these are, like, the guys that they haven't doped up with a bunch of steroids who they can play that didn't, pat, didn't fit, you know, fail the drug test. But what's funny to me is I guess Russia is so good or maybe they have these people on something different that they're still winning like all kinds of events. I always see like the ROC like up at the top of everything. And I thought the best example was uh, in mixed doubles in tennis, the gold medal match was between two Russian mixed doubles teams. They actually you know, made it to the finals. And both on both sides of Russian mixed doubles, and I was like, "All right, so you know, <laughs> they're good enough to now they have four different people that are better on the men's and women's side than anyone else." And they see them like across the board doing so great, but these are not their best players that are doing it, or the ones that you know didn't pass the drug tests earlier. So it's just kind of a weird thing, and I, I'm just like I'm questioning it highly. 
that these people somehow weren't made to take these same kind of drugs that the other ones were. Mm-hmm. And I've wondered about that Russian Olympic Committee. I, when, when I saw that on some of the, the score sheets, I was kind of thrown off by that at first. Yeah, but I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thing there. And, um, you know, in terms of, like, other stories that, that we have at the Olympics that are, that are really good, you know, uh, I think the, the biggest, like, takeaway that I have uh, was that I found a new sport that I find kind of interesting, and that's handball. I didn't know what I didn't know what it was. It was you know I was like, what is handball? And when I started watching it, it's like this amazing amalgamation between dodgeball, football, and basketball, all in one sport. And I'm like, this actually would be kind of cool to play this. And I kind of wish you saw this more often. I would have definitely played this if this was something that was offered because it seemed like it was pretty cool. Yeah, it did seem cool. Uh, the closest thing I've ever played to handball back in the day at like a summer camp. We would use like an inflated ball that was similar to a dodgeball. And we were in the gym and we played it similar to like kickball or baseball rules where you're running the bases. But like the pitcher would bounce the ball towards the plate and we would stand just like we were batting. But instead of having a bat in our hand, we would just hit the ball with our fist and like it would just go off into the air. It was just so much fun. I, I don't know if that, you know, makes sense as far as an illustration, but. That was the only rendition of handball I'd ever heard of. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely it's very it's very different, and yeah, I guess that can be kind of close. I mean, like I said, to me, the closest thing I've ever played to it probably is like some different something you know combination of basketball and dodgeball. That I, I thought it was pretty neat. Yeah. Um, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more Olympics. Uh, probably, I wanted to focus on a little bit of the basketball stories. We can kind of come off the NBA Finals and talk about Luka Doncic is doing um, in the Olympics right now. I want to thank all of our listeners on our special Sunday night Olympic show. Uh, you can catch all of our episodes on Spotify. Look up the Dangerous Sports Show on Spotify. Follow us on Facebook, usually every Wednesday night at 8 p.m. And then 